The following talk was given at the Insight Meditation Center in Redwood City, California. Please visit our website at audiodharma.org. Good evening. So tonight I'd like to share with you a little bit um, of, I'd like to start off a little bit from a sutta, the Mahagosanga Sutta. And uh, it's very, uh, I don't know, I think it's kind of interesting and a little bit fun that the Buddha, he's staying in this, maybe I should say most suttas begin by saying like, where is the Buddha? They give like a location. I shouldn't say most, a certain genre of suttas do. And he's staying in the Gosinga, which is a Sol forest park with Sol trees. And my understanding is Sol trees are these really majestic, giant, beautiful trees. Maybe like how we might think of redwood trees. You know, they have this certain majesty when you're inst- when you're amongst them. And so the Buddha is staying there, and there's a number of his uh, senior monastics who are also staying there. They're, during the day, they go off and meditate, which is you know, not so uncommon. So they go off to their own different places in this Sol forest, or these Sol woods. And then um, at the end of the day, or kind of like late afternoon, early evening, one of his monastics, Mahamogalana, he goes to somebody else, Mahakasapa, and says, this is Diana's rendition, hey, let's go hear Sariputta give a talk. So they're going to go to one of their friends, another one of the senior monastics, to go give a Dharma talk. So Mahamogalana, Mahakasapa are going to hear Sariputta give a talk. And then uh, Mahakasapa sees uh, Anuruddha and says, oh, okay, invites him too. So now there's uh, three people that are going to uh, see Sariputta give a talk. And then Ananda sees these three in the distance and says, oh, what are you guys doing? Oh, I want to (laughs) go. And he invites Revita. So now there's all these people. For me, this is kind of fun. I like this idea that, you know, they're practicing. They're in silence all during the day. But at the end of the day, they're connecting and they're friends. They want to spend time together and they want to go hear a Dharma talk from Sariputta, who is probably the most senior monastic at the time of the Buddha. So all five of them go to see Sariputta. And Sariputta sees them approaching and welcomes them. And he says, by this time, actually, uh, by the time they get there, it's now early evening or nighttime. Or maybe it's dusk, something like this. Says, and Sariputta says, the soul forest is lovely and the night is bright. This word we could also even say day, but he's just commenting on how it's just lovely here and how the light is. And he says, the salt trees are in full blossom. So these magnificent trees with lots of flowers. And he says, and there's these divine scents that seems to float on the air. So it's this really magical, lovely place. And Sariputta asks Ananda, Ananda, what kind of practitioner could illuminate or beautify this park, this place where we're practicing even more? So 
Is there somebody that by, by the way that they talk or the way that they show up that could just make this even better? And Ananda says, and remember Ananda is the Buddha's attendant and he's the one who the tradition holds, was there when the Buddha gave all these talks and remembered them. And so after the Buddha died, it was Ananda who taught all these discourses to everybody else and this is how they got preserved through the ages before. So Ananda is known for his memory and known for knowing all the Buddha's talks, being familiar with them. So Sariputta asks Ananda, what kind of practitioner would make this, or maybe we might even say what kind of practice would make this even more beautiful? And Ananda says, a person who has learned much, who remembers what he has learned and consolidates what he has learned and then gives teachings that are beautiful in the beginning, beautiful in the middle, and beautiful in the end. That is somebody who would make it more beautiful. So, you know, it's probably not a coincidence that Ananda, who's known for having learned everything and remembered it, saying, oh yeah, somebody who has learned it and remembered it, That's that would be the best. And then Sariputta says, well... Ananda has responded according to his own ideal, right? recognizing that this is something maybe unique to Ananda. But then Sariputta says, well, what about you, Revada? What kind of practitioner could beautify or illuminate this park even more where we're practicing? And Revada was this preeminent meditator. He, would, he was known as somebody that would like to go off on a retreat, and he would just go off and practice on his own, and he'd like to just spend time in meditation. So Revada, he says, well, a person who delights in retreat and takes delight in retreat and who is devoted to internal serenity of mind and does not neglect meditation. A person who possesses insight, and dwells in empty huts, dwelling in empty hut. Some of you may know the Buddha's often given instructions like, oh, go into an empty hut and meditate, or go to a foot of tree and meditate. So, not surprisingly, Saraputta says, well, Ravada has responded according to his own ideal. What about you, Anuruddha? Who do you think would be the most beautiful? And Anuruddha says, well, a person who surveys the entire galaxy with a clairvoyance that is purified and surpasses the human. So, you know, Anuruddha is something that's saying something fantastic. And then Sariputta replies, well, according to his own ideal. And then he goes and he asks Mahakasapa, and he goes to ask Mahamogalana, and then they ask Sariputta. And so all of them are giving these ideas about what they are known for. So there are six different people. They give six different ideas. I think they may be all delighting in this. And then they go, well, let's go talk to the Buddha. Let's see what he has to say. So they go to the Buddha, and Sariputta recounts everything that happens. And then the Buddha replies, good, good. Uh, after Ananda answered in the way that's right for him. Revada answered in the way that's right for him. Anuruddha answered in the way that's right for him. Right, he says this for each person. And then Sariputta asks, well, Venerable Sir, who has spoken well? Like, he kind of maybe wants to know. And the Buddha replies, you have all spoken well. 
there's a little bit more to this, but for me, I, I love this actually, right? The Buddha isn't saying, no, this one's best, or that's, you know, the worst, or anything like this. He's saying, you've all spoken well. These are all the seniors, these are all the Buddha's senior disciples, and they all have different expertise, or they all have different um, specialties, or, you know, proclivities, or things that, ways in which they practice. Six different people, six different ways, and the Buddha is saying, you've all spoken well. Which I feel touched by because it's not like there's only one way and it has to look a particular way. The Buddha is recognizing that different people bring different things to practice and the practice matures in them differently and shows up in them differently. Whether it's exactly the same way as gets described here, is not the point I like to say. It's more that it doesn't have to look one particular way. So Sariputta asks the Buddha, who has spoken well? And he says, you have all spoken well, each in his own way. But let me also, as to what kind of person would beautify this all forest at Kosinga. So now the Buddha is going to give his answer. Is a person who returns from alms round and after the meal sits down cross-legged, sets their body straight and establishes mindfulness, practices mindfulness, and then, and resolves, I shall not break this sitting position until through not clinging my mind is liberated from the taints. So those of you who know the story of the Buddha, this is verbatim what the Buddha says himself before he becomes awakened. This resolve, this determination to, after so many years of practice, that he's going to sit until and not move until he's awakened. So for me, here's a seventh person who has a seventh way to show up. But I appreciate that the Buddha, he's not talking about these great, fantastic, having learned lots of things, having clairvoyance that can see all galaxies or going off and meditating a lot. He's just talking about bringing mindfulness, sitting down and bringing mindfulness with some resolve. This is something all of us can do. This is something that, you know, the Buddha is holding up. It's just something ordinary, is this this mindfulness practice? Yes, when the Buddha did it, he had this resolve that he wasn't going to move until uh, he became awakened. But I would like to think just this idea of resolve. So I would like to say that each of us have our own way of maybe like illuminating or beautifying this like a practice area with our own practice this way of kind of like embodying this path of practice. But resolve is something that we can bring to whatever flavor or way in which we practice. So mindfulness, as it matures, may show up in all kinds of different ways, but with some resolve allows this mindfulness to blossom and to unfold and to bloom in a way in which can bring greater and greater freedom and peace. So what, what does this mean to be have resolve with practice? There's a number of ways we can think about it, but some of it is like a certain amount of tenacity or determination or stick or 
maybe overcoming resistance to meditation. All of us, everybody has said, I don't feel like meditating. (laughs) I don't want to. Oh, I'm not going to go to the Dharma talk. Oh, I'm not going to sit. Yeah, okay, I see my cushion there. And I usually meditate this time, but I don't feel like it. I mean, all of us do this. It's part of the human's experience. But maybe this resolve is maybe just like putting aside alternatives instead of sleeping in or whatever it may be. Or maybe it resolve means having enough trust or faith or confidence in ourselves or in the practice that even though we might not feel like it, that we still are willing to meditate, practice mindfulness. And here's something that I think is really important. It's about this resolve. I I wish I had a better uh, word that I could translate the Pali word aditana with. Because sometimes when we hear about resolve, we feel it can be like this really like straining and striving and pushing. And it turns out that works for a little bit and then it doesn't. But you can't take, I don't think it'll ever work just to hear somebody say that. I think we all have to have that experience. But there's a way in which there can be some um, real striving and straining and the striving and straining itself is what is getting in the way of practice. Because there's a way in which what's often fueling the straining or the striving of this, I gotta get it. Which, of course, this works in our professional life, it works in our educational life, but it doesn't work in our meditation life because what's fueling that is there's a big sense of I have to make something happen. And as I said, it works for a little bit. And we need a little something amount of that. But so much about practice is having this trust that you don't have to make everything happen at that moment. And then negotiating or navigating, like figuring out, well, what does that mean exactly? Because to be sure, it certainly takes effort to get to the cushion. It takes resolve, determination to keep on meditating even though you don't feel like it or even to begin. But there's a way in which it can kind of like collapse and just turn into a... um, it's a word that where you're just going to, I forget what the word is exactly, but you're just like you're slogging through snow and you're like going to just uh, burying it out. So resolve is letting go of the idea that personal growth can just come quickly with minimal effort, but also recognizing that it needs some amount of effort. And this is part of what the art of practice is, is getting a sense of, well, what is the right amount of effort? And so resolve is also about recognizing that, you know, it's not always fun or easy, and that to recognize that difficulties are part of the path, that it's not necessarily always pleasant or comfortable, And then when those times when we do give up, just to begin again, 
as best we can. Like if we, even if we haven't meditated for a long time or we haven't done any of these practices that we like to do, and we discover, well, gosh, it's been months, just to begin again. It doesn't have to be complicated. We don't have to add all these stories about what it means about us as a person or as a meditator. We just simply begin again. And to be sure, for some people, this idea of perseverance or resolve is a quality that they already have an abundance of, that they are those type of people. They make a plan, they do it, and they just don't stop until it's done. And maybe for those people, working with resolve, aditana, is a way that maybe the, the edge of their practice is how to have this resolve without getting too tight or too constricted or how to do it that how to continue practice without it turning into drudgery is there a way that there can be some lightness to it i know sometimes for me i sometimes can fall into drudgery like oh my gosh i have to do this and i sometimes just uh kind of like will do it even though it's uh I could like make it more light or not quite so heavy, but I'm like, oh my gosh, I have to do this. It doesn't have to be that way, right? But sometimes we can slip into this sense of this drudgery. Or maybe for some people it's not so hard to continue their practice or to stay with it. But there can be a way maybe in which they disconnect from people or brusque with people like, go away, I'm meditating. Or no, I can't do that, I have to meditate or something like this, that their relationships get uh, affected because they're going to finish this project, whatever it is. So for some people, resolve or aditana is not so much about keep on coming back, but it's about to have this stick to with some spaciousness and some openness and some ease. And this is so much about the art of practice, is having this Ease and openness and stick to We so often kind of want to collapse around the things that we're doing or need to do. But is there a way that we can do it with some joy or some happiness? So I would say, this, what are these things that we resolve on? I've been giving the examples of uh, meditation practice, but, you know, as part of Buddhist practice, we have this resolve to not harm, not harm others, not harm ourselves, this to be mindful of what's happening, if, whether it's on the, formally on the cushion or whatever's happening in our life. And maybe this resolve to let go as best we can, this recognition that clinging is and holding on really tightly is never the way forward, never the best way forward, but it's more kind of like opening, letting go is the way forward. So what are some of the things that get in the way of uh, resolve? Well, it turns out that the hindrances to meditation are also the same hindrances to resolve as the same hindrances to so many things in our life. So 
this idea that um, these five energies, these five occupations of the mind that show up in our formal meditation practice are also what's getting in the way. So sensual desire, ill will, sloth and torpor, restlessness and doubt. These are five obstacles to practice or five obstacles to doing anything that we really want to do. And so they can distract us from our intentions, our aspirations, and they actually have pretty powerful in our life. If we're not aware of them, they can push us around in such an incredible way. And I'd like to talk about one of them in particular, and that is doubt. Because this, we might have this, um, might be a way, this might happen. There's so many different ways that doubt shows up, but maybe there's, uh, we're meditating and everything's going along swimmingly, and then it becomes uncomfortable. Either because we have some emotions memories or something or thoughts of, oh my gosh I forgot to do that thing and <laughs> and now this terrible thing's going to happen and I got to jump up and send that email or do this or do that or maybe it's just pain in the knee or in the back or whatever it might be so maybe the meditation's going along well then maybe there's a flash of uncomfortableness with this flash of uncomfortableness maybe there's this inner critic that arises, like, oh, I can't do this. Everybody else seems to be able to do it, but I can't do it. Or maybe there's something about, uh, I shouldn't have even started. Why, who do I think that I am? Or I don't know. There's so many ways that we can undermine our capability, we start to doubt ourselves. Or maybe we even start thinking, why am I doing this meditation thing anyway? I'm not even sure that it helps. Or it used to help, but it doesn't seem to be helping now. Or, you know, There's so many ways in which the thinking we can cook up and dream up all these ways that practice seems to not be helpful or we think maybe isn't worthwhile. Anything except, all the opposite except resolve. I notice that you don't have these types of thoughts when meditation's going well, when we're feeling settled, when we feel like we have a certain amount of ease. So it's only when there's a certain, when it's uncomfortable or there's a certain feeling like, well, maybe I'd rather do something else. And who knows, maybe that's because we want to avoid something, or maybe there is the discomfort. But a consequence, something that happens when this type of thinking starts, like, well, maybe I shouldn't do this, I should be doing something else, and I'm not even sure this is helpful anyway. As soon as we get lost or caught up in that type of thinking, then we're no longer actually with our experience. Instead, we're lost in our thoughts. And I love what kind of the Buddha was saying, you know, just a person who sits down in his mindfulness. He was kind of like holding this up as a ideal practice. So not so much that 
we have to do it perfectly. But as soon as we're lost in thoughts, then, you know, thoughts can go anywhere and everywhere, and they do. So is there a way that we can just bring awareness back to, oh, this is a lot of, we could even use this word doubt. This is doubt about myself. This is doubt about the practice, or doubt about the teachings, or doubt about the teacher. So this sense of hesitation or vacillation, or might getting lost in papancha, this like proliferation of thoughts. And one way to think about kind of like doubt is that when I when I think about uh, the experience, like this is a hindrance that shows up for everybody, there's a certain amount of swirling, like, oh, I'm not sure, I'll do this, maybe I'll do that. And so it has that kind of little bit of an energetic feel. And so when we recognize either these thoughts, I'm not sure I should do this, or I want to do this, or there's that feeling, this vacillation, this hesitation, we can just tune into that, that experience, and maybe name it, oh, this is doubt. Because doubt rarely shows up and announces itself, oh, this is doubt. Instead, it's trying to, you know, say like, be wisdom. You, oh, it'd be better if you <laughs> need to do self-care, take care of yourself and go do something else. Just sleep in or take a nap instead. And to be sure, sometimes you should sleep in and take a nap. But, you know, sometimes, you know, just uh, meditation practice is what's needed. So we could t- one way to practice with doubt is just to recognize it and name it. It's really helpful. And to bring it back to the body is a really good way to feel like this sense of uncertainty. I don't really know what to do. It can be helpful to like maybe like feel the foundation, like the, what you're sitting on, feel the connectedness, the settledness. Oh, I'm here right now, and I'm doing this. I'm doing this meditation practice. So to get out of this abstract thinking and the philosophizing, sometimes we can just get lost in abstract thinking. Of course we can. There might be this restlessness or this heaviness or this sense of unease. So to tune into the bodily experience, mindfulness, first foundation of mindfulness. You can also remind yourself that thoughts are just thoughts. They're just thoughts. Thoughts, you know, like, right? They're ephemeral. They, a whole other set of thoughts are going to show up in another moment. So you don't have to, like, grab these thoughts and hold them to be authoritative and have them be the, like, this is the truth of the moment. They're just thoughts. This could say is mindfulness too, is the third foundation, mindfulness of the mind. And so some way to kind of like undermine this uh, idea that, oh, this is not a good thing to do, or I'm not even sure what I should do. And then investigate. Get a little bit curious, as if uh, you were a naturalist. I like this idea of being a naturalist. So, okay. So I'm having all this doubt. 
and it feels like this, and you might do a gentle inquiry, was there something that uh, planted the seed for it? It could be a particular question. It could be a particular uncomfortable experience. And with this uncomfortable experience, then their inner critic shows up and like you know, likes to take over and maybe like undermine what you're doing. Think like, ah, oh, it's not going to work. <laughs> so you can investigate. And then you, something that might be helpful is like to, if you just have an inquiry, is there a particular question that I have? Is there something that I really do have doubt about, about the teachings, particular things that you're not so sure about? Or maybe you're not so sure about the teacher, or maybe you're not so sure about yourself. But it can be helpful to get a little bit more specific. Is there a specific question? And sometimes it could be helpful even to write this down. And that can really help clarify, instead of this vacillation, then once you have a question, you can maybe go find an answer. Listen to Dharma books. Talk to other people. Talk to teachers. Do more practice. There's a... Google it, <laughs> right, these days. Right? There's a way in which you can like, do something to maybe answer your question. Or maybe you can just recognize, okay, it feels like this to have a question. That's different than doubt. That type of a question... That's welcome. Like, that's definitely part of the practice, to have a question and maybe not know the answer. That's really part of the practice. There's so much that we don't have the answers to. And I'm going like this with my hands, because not knowing is a way that we're letting go of knowing exactly what the next moment is going to bring. Always having the answer is a way in which we're kind of like subtly trying to control things and so that we feel more comfortable. But not knowing is uncomfortable, but there's a way in which also not knowing has, that's where the freedom is. If we always knew what's going to happen next, there's no freedom there. It's so, it, this having the question is a big part of the way forward. So when there's doubt, Can you identify a specific question and maybe find the answer? But maybe there isn't an answer. And can you be okay with that? Practice with that. And that turns again away away from this vacillation and hesitation to, oh yeah, I have this question and, and not knowing the answer feels like this. That's mindfulness again. And then... Maybe one last way to work with doubt that I'll mention. There's a number of ways, but for tonight I'll end on this one. To bring to mind, well, what do you have confidence in? What do you know about the practice or about yourself? Sometimes it can be helpful to reflect, like, oh yeah, before I had a meditation practice, I didn't realize how busy my mind was. I didn't realize, for example, what a planner I was or... Since I've been mindful, I've not only have I gained this greater understanding, but I have a little bit more patience with other people because I see how they're trying to just figure things out in the same way that I'm trying to figure things out. Or maybe there's this way that we 
can bring to mind. You know, there have been times in my practice that have been really uplifting and meaningful or maybe transformative. And it wasn't always that way. It has been moments like that, but maybe it will be that way again. So instead of like abandoning things when things get difficult, just remember that there have been times there have been some real fruits of practice. And then also to remind ourselves that when we sit down, chance to meditate, chances are at the beginning, however it is that feels the meditation is, is not how it is at the end. But there's, if the meditation shifts and changes through the meditation period. Sometimes at the end it's worse and sometimes it's better. But it's never exactly the way that it is at the beginning. So sometimes we might feel like, oh, this is going to be terrible. There's no way I can sit here for all this time. But just this memory that, you know, there have been times when the mind has really settled and opened and there's been some ease. So the Buddha talked about, you know, so many different ways of practice. I mean, it shows up in many different ways. He emphasized mindfulness and resolve. And then we can ask ourselves, what is it that gets in the way of resolve? And very often it's doubt. Not exclusively, but very often it's doubt. And so we can practice with doubt by being mindful of it, by investigating it, getting a little bit curious about it, and maybe tuning into or seeing if we can simplify it into a particular question. Or we can also bring to mind what we have confidence in or what some of our experience has been with meditation that has been uplifting. So with that, this is kind of like, I like this, I started with the Gosinga, Maha Gosinga Sutta, in which you know there's these people that come together and they practice together and they appreciate each other and they also recognize that you know the practice doesn't look exactly the same for everybody. And sometimes something that can undermine our practice is the doubt that takes the form of, oh, they look like they have it and I don't, or clearly they're doing something better than I am, or something like that. But just this recognition that practice looks different for different people. And I think I'll end there. So thank you. And I'll open it up if there are any questions or comments. Hi. I think when you're talking about the the doubt or the five hindrances, it kind of reminded me of how a lot of times we sort of separate ourselves or we we have a trouble finding common ground. And I was thinking we all have a lot of, you know, um, share a lot of our own sort of doubt and, and share that in common <laughs> with everyone else. But I think we uh, spend more time uh, in the things that probably separate us instead of unite us. But it was interesting to think about sharing some negative qualities. <laughs> yeah, it's true, right? It's uh, surprising. Well, I, I've talked about this a number of times, how much I love, like, you know, the Buddha talked about these thousands of years ago. So there's countless people that have been having doubt uh, about practice, you know, through all these years and I think it's something that's kind of it is definitely part of practice absolutely and not only about practice but everything in our life right yeah yeah
Thank you. The common humanity is what it means to be a human, is to part of it is to have doubt. Thank you. Anybody else have a comment or a question? Well, I'll make a comment. <laughs> Just in the last couple of weeks, I watched a documentary called The Endurance about Sir um, Ernest Shackleton mm. and how how dedicated he was once his ship, once it was clear that he wasn't going to be able to get to Antarctica, to save all of his men. Mm. And, you know, there was just a sense of never giving up, never exactly knowing what was the right thing to do, whether they were going to be able to get to land or to certain islands. Um, but it was a very inspiring documentary about that sense of um, just keeping investigating what you know what's what are the possibilities now I mean as the ship got carried by the ice you know what was going to be closest and what could they save and what couldn't they so yeah, thank you. Thank you, Jim. Because that, that brings to mind something else that could help with doubt is if there's something for us that's particularly inspiring and motivating, like you know, a type of North Star that's really important to us, just like Shackleton wanting to save all his men. Is there something, maybe it's not the same as saving our other people, but maybe there's something that really you know drives us or motivates us or inspires us. So actually, thank you. Thank you, Jim. This is the half-baked thought, so maybe it'll finish as it comes out. Uh, so I read that sutta a couple of years ago, and I really liked it. And it seemed to me that maybe this was written down long after the Buddha, because um, all these characters in it have got superpowers that are larger than life. And it's almost like the X-Men or the Legion of Superheroes. Um <laughs> And they're very well defined as if they've got, they're all wearing their, their different colored costumes. <laughs> I love this. Um, this is getting better and better. <laughs> and also, it, it, it just seems unlikely that they would all be in the same place at the same time, and the Buddha would be there near there, too. Um, and I also remember really loving about the story that. I thought, sure, they were going to come to blows because they, they also vigorously disagreed. And, you know, the, the guys with the elephant came to blows. Yes, yes. Uh, but they were blind. Yes. And these were all arahants. Yes. And this is a healthy way to have differences of opinion. Um, and then I was really sure that the Buddha was going to scold them and say, why are you worried about which of you is even more right than the other one. That's not a wise thing to have your minds on. So, mm-hmm. no, nah, you all you all spoke well, and here's what I have to say. Um, seemed there was something really, really gentle ab- about that. Mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. So, my thoughts on that. Thank you, thank you. Yeah, I was uh, in my mind. I had kind of this idea that. Uh, 
sorry, Puta, who's the one who's doing this speaking, he just wants to hear from everybody. And it doesn't matter so much what they have to say or something like that. Uh, I don't know. And then going to see the Buddha. Yeah, it is curious. Like, why did they go see the Buddha? Was it to resolve something or just to share? Like, hey, look look what we did. We just sat around and talked about this or something. I don't know. But it's, it's kind of, there's, I guess there's a number of ways we can read between the lines. But I think only uh, one of them has these superpowers. I think it's only superpowers uh, that has... Is wearing the, no, Anuruddha. Yeah. yeah. Is wearing the costume <laughs> of one of these. I don't really know the X Men, but I know the, the premise. So. But I was thinking of, you know, the finger quotes superpower yeah, yeah. of asking the right question or being able to sit for long, long times. That uh, Maybe not superpowers, but characteristics yeah. that are very finely distinguished. Yeah, yeah. You know, I, uh, there's some other hints in here, too, about um, why it, actually, it might be a later sutta, just how, but, you know, I don't know. But I, I pulled this together because I th- thought that, I don't know, it's kind of nice, like how practice shows up in different ways. We don't all have to look the same. Okay, okay. Thank you all. I'll stay up here if anybody has some questions or something they'd like to say. Oops.